Well, folks, we are nearing the end of Eastertide, uh, our spiritual terminus being Pentecost. That's next Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. But before Pentecost, we have one more crucial, crucial destination, and that is today, and that is the Ascension, which I again said that was celebrated this last Thursday, but we often bring it into the Sunday following. We don't want to miss it. It's really important. So Jesus himself said that he must go away in order that uh, the helper would come. So the ascension is Jesus's necessary point of departure, and it's a transition from his earthly ministry uh, to his heavenly one. So we've been following really closely the life of Jesus, if you notice, all the way since Advent. And that's the intention of Advent through Pentecost, is to follow along the life and ministry of Jesus very closely. I think that's one of the points of brilliance of the church calendar. And today is the close of a chapter. So the ascension marks the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. So these are his final words and actions. All those post-resurrection actions sort of culminate uh, in our passages today. So it's the final lap in his earthly ministry. And what he does and what he says before he goes into heaven, I think is indispensable. It's similar to um, almost like a last will and testament. And what it's going to do is it's going to carry forward and prepare the disciples for the future. Ergo us. So the ascension is important. <laughs> it's important for, enough to be mentioned in our creeds. It's important enough that Luke mentions it in both Luke and Acts. He wrote both of those, and they're intended to be read together, kind of a part one, part two. Uh, if you'll notice, what ends Luke and begins Acts is the ascension. It's sort of the hinge moment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull from both passages and kind of um, conflate them into one account. We're going to explore those today. But let's begin with the obvious. In Jesus's final moments on earth, he chooses to spend it with his inner circle. He chooses to spend it with his disciples. It's kind of similar to the Road to Emmaus account. You know, there's this picture of him sort of opening their minds and revealing all the more the richness of who he is and the great salvation story and all that he fulfills. Now, his parting words at the end of Luke 24 focus on three things. One of them I've already alluded to. Uh, it's that first point of, look, guys, I am the Messiah. I fulfill all of Scripture. It's all pointing to me. He speaks of the law. That's the Torah. He speaks of the prophets, and he speaks of the Psalms, meaning the wisdom literature. So those are the three major divisions and genres in the Old Testament. So his point is, guys, all of it, beginning to end, all of it, I fulfill, and it's all about me. Again, similar to Emmaus and sort of opening their minds, showing how the whole of the Old Testament is about him. That's one of, the, one of the things he focuses on at the end of Luke 24. Second thing he focuses on, he calls the disciples to bear witness. He calls them to testify, right? So guys, take my, take my story of suffering, death, and resurrection and preach a gospel of repentance and forgiveness to all the corners of the earth. So he gives them a mission, okay? That's the second piece. And the third one is related. But don't get ahead of yourselves. Uh, wait for what's promised first. So wait for the Holy Spirit, okay? In other words, don't jump the gun on mission. Don't do that. You lack one very essential thing. It's not a thing at all. It's a person. I'm going to send you what the Father's promised. So what you're to do, you're to wait 
in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. I just love that phrase. The Holy Spirit, a gift and a promise that's going to be fulfilled. Now, think about this with me. If you're the disciples, this is a gift and a promise. It's somewhat ambiguous, a largely unknown entity. Okay, the disciples do not have some fully formed Trinitarian theology in their heads. They don't have that. They don't have their pneumatology worked out. Uh, this is kind of new. Their knowledge and experience of the Holy Spirit is partial at best. So see if you can relate to this. They're waiting with very limited data. Does that sound familiar to anyone here? Jesus is saying, I'm not going to orphan you to this mission. But what's coming, they don't fully know. They don't fully know. We know, but they don't. So um, they have a question for Jesus, and I'm pulling from Acts 1-6 here. So, Lord, is now the time? Are you going to restore Israel now? I'm going to make some observations about how Jesus deals with this, and I think what they're asking. Um, first thing he says, Jesus addresses it with, is saying, none of your business, basically. That's a secret. It's hidden from you. That's for God the Father. He knows the hour. He knows um, the way there. And I think their question here is really centering on waiting. How long, Lord, before you act? And, and when are you going to act? Is this the time? Notice Jesus doesn't answer their question. He doesn't answer. He leaves them in the tension of that waiting. What he does do is he redirects them to mission. Okay, guys, your immediate task is to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. You're going to bring my kingdom wherever you go. So he refocuses their attention on mission. This was the last final command Jesus gave before he left the disciples. Very important then, right? Again, if you think of last will and testament, you're saying something very important. You're saying something to those that come after you. Don't forget this. Please don't forget this. Very important. And in calling them to this mission, he commissions them. Okay. He doesn't say, go do this. He commissions them. I think that's really crucial in this ascension story. The essential part of that commission is to wait for the Holy Spirit. So don't, get, don't, don't jump the gun on mission. Wait for the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Again, taking Luke and Acts, kind of conflating them. And so after commissioning them in Bethany, which I love this little detail. This is on the slope of the Mount of Olives. Remember that place from Holy Week? If not, go back and reread it. In that place, in Bethany, on the slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus is taken up from before their eyes. He disappears into a cloud, that great sign of God's glory. Think of Moses in the Ten Commandments. Think of the transfiguration. Think of Revelation 11. Here it is again. Reed preached on that a few weeks ago. It's his return to glory. Jesus is going home, capital H. And his ministry isn't complete. It isn't complete until he's exalted to the right hand of God the Father. So this is Jesus taking on the full mantle of divine kingship. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is kingly language. This is a kingly reign. This is the king of kings from which we get our namesake. So the, the ascension is his enthronement in a sense. King Jesus is exalted here. He's been faithful. 
He's finished the race, and he now returns to his throne in victory to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, I have to wonder, what was it like in the heavenlies upon his return? I'd love to know. There's no comment made in the scriptures, but I would love to know what that looked like. What was that homecoming like? That must have been incredible. And I anticipate we'll experience something very similar when we go to meet the Lord. Final detail, as Jesus ascends into heaven, his final earthly act is blessing. I mean, this, this gets me. This is the final thing that he does. As he's being taken up, the scriptures say he's blessing. He's blessing. He's blessing his disciples. It's just, it's beautiful. I mean, it's very, I find it really moving. And he's gone. And after he's gone, our earthbound disciples, understandably, are pictured as still looking up into the sky. They're still gazing very intently into the sky after Jesus disappears. This is Acts 1.10. What are they doing? I don't know. Are they basking in the moment? I don't know. Are they waiting? Are they shocked? Are they looking for his reappearance? Is he coming back again? Or, you know, or is this the final act in the divine drama? Did he just say goodbye for good? For us, it's clear. Sure, we know this is it. But again, remember, if you're in their shoes, since his resurrection, it's been a series of very unpredictable events. You know, what's Jesus going to do next? There's a lot of appearances and disappearances and comings and goings. So they have to be wondering, is, is that, is he really gone? And remember, the ascension, it's something Jesus didn't fully tell them about. He didn't describe him leaving this way and how that was going to look. So regardless of what their reaction is, why they're still looking up in the sky, still gazing up, I mean, can't you resonate with their desire or their lingering here? I mean, can't you resonate with it? You have one of these encounters with the Lord that's very real. It's a touchstone in your life where his presence is so palpable and is so real. You just want to freeze that moment, right? You want to bottle it. You want to stay. It's kind of like Peter at the Transfiguration. So let's Let's build three tents. Let's abide here. I mean, we all understand that. So I think they're understandably sort of stuck in that moment until the two angels interrupt their ponderings. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as we saw him go into heaven. So what we have here, what remains, is an air of finality. And for me, it just, I don't know if, if I'm in their shoes, I, there's such a bittersweetness to this scene. Uh, for me, as I encounter it, uh, their reaction is a bit different because this is the decisive close of a chapter and the waiting for another season to begin, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' earthly work is done, consummated, complete. This is a definitive end. They have spent three years give or take, with their Lord and with their friend. And the disciples will no longer see him in this way. So for me, that's just, that kind of chokes me up a little bit. It's bittersweet. But um, their reaction was different. Where there could have been sadness, where there could have been despair, their initial response to his ascension is worship. <laughs> Love this. 
They witnessed his glory and they worshiped him. This is the first time in Luke that he speaks of anyone worshiping Jesus. This is Luke 24, 52, first time. So even with this air of finality, even with all that, it's interesting. The response is not grief, but it's one of joy. They worship, they rejoice, says they stayed at the temple continually praising God. Luke is winking at us here a little bit uh, as he concludes his gospel. If you go back to Luke 1, one of the things you'll find is the setting of it. Luke's gospel began in the temple. That's where it began. It concludes in the very same place with the disciples continually in the temple, continually praising or blessing the Lord. Luke's taken us on this full circle journey. In the first chapter of Luke, there were these rumblings and rumors and prophecies and promises of a forerunner and of a Messiah. And by the final chapter, this Messiah has come and fulfilled all that was promised and all that was prophesied. So something is completed and fulfilled, and there's this full circle journey in Luke. So Luke begins his gospel with doxology. Luke ends his gospel with doxology, with praise and worship. Those are our divine bookends. His doxology to God and for us. I just love that. Now, for those of us who think Jesus' work, and I thought this for a long time, I have to confess, for those of you who might think that Jesus' work was essentially done after the resurrection, all these post-resurrection stories that we've been living in uh, the last few weeks, they might seem odd or they might seem unnecessary, right? Wasn't, I mean, after the resurrection, wasn't it mission accomplished? Wasn't it done? Why all this extra work between the resurrection and ascension? What is that all about? Well, put briefly, um, first piece, Jesus had to prove he was actually alive. It's a really practical piece. After his death, he presents himself to all these witnesses in proof that he's alive. And he appears several times during these 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So part of it was very practical. He had to prove he actually was alive. Second piece, which really is the one I want to land on. Jesus is mobilizing the disciples. There's a baton handoff that's coming. It's coming. There's further preparation. It has to happen after the resurrection. Jesus is calling the disciples, all of them, into more and to grow into their identity and call. He's welcoming them into a deeper walk with him, a deeper love of the world. That's the mission piece. So upon Jesus' ascension, we see there's a real shift in the disciples and all of them. They're maturing into apostles. And there is a shift you see in the text. They go from being called disciples, which means followers of Jesus, which they certainly are. They begin to be called the apostles. Messengers, that means the sent out ones. Again, it acknowledges not just being followers and disciples, but now they're messengers and missionaries on mission, carrying the mission of Jesus. So uh, we see maturity happening in the disciples. We see that they've learned something since Golgotha. They're changing, they're growing, they're stepping into who Jesus is calling them to be. They're responding to this commission, to this charge that Jesus gave to be sent out on mission. Again, the shift from the apostles, disciples to apostles. So why wasn't resurrection mission accomplished? Uh, while the extra work, while the waiting between resurrection and ascension, people and circumstances needed to be readied. 
we had to be prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is where we'll go next week. So there was work to be done, even post-resurrection for Jesus, which I think is a fascinating thing. So we've just looked at the ascension from a very earthly perspective, from, from the text of sort of what it's like to inhabit that story um, and see it from the earth or earthbound perspective. I want to look at it uh, from a divine perspective, though. What does it mean for Jesus to go back to heaven? I really want to encourage you guys. This is going to get theological at points. Some of you are excited about that. Some of you are like, oh, man, I'm not up for that. Stick with me. Uh, this is really important. This isn't just theology for theology's sake. This is important stuff. Okay, so please hang with me. What does it mean for Jesus to return to heaven? Track with me here, will you? Okay, Jesus came into the world and took on flesh. That's the incarnation, okay? In the ascension, Jesus leaves the world as he came into it. He is fully divine, fully human. But pre-incarnation, Jesus wasn't fully human yet. So when Jesus returns to heaven, when he goes home, he's not only fully divine, he's fully human. Folks, this is new. This is new. He brings a piece of humanity home, capital H, with him into heaven, a previously missing piece. So crucial. So the incarnation wasn't just about Jesus coming, descending, to the earth, okay? In the ascension, Jesus brings something back home with him, ascending up. He brings home a piece of humanity. His ministry is incomplete without this. Think of the implications if humanity isn't brought back up into heaven. Think of the implications for salvation, for the redemption of all things, etc., etc., etc. So Jesus the Son takes a piece of us, our humanity, with him. And soon afterward, a gift and a promise from heaven follows. The Holy Spirit, God again, giving us a piece of himself, the gift of himself, not a piece of himself, the gift of himself, to live as a deposit in our hearts and in our midst as a body. So you have the ascension of Jesus, the descent of the Holy Spirit. It's a great exchange. We can't miss that. So the ascension assures us that there is a piece of humanity in heaven now. That's the piece of us that's hidden with Christ in God in the heavenly realms, Colossians 3.3. And it makes all the difference in the world. So I'm going to make the case to some of you. Some of you are already convinced. Um, some of you may not be. The ascension, it's every bit as important as the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. It is essential. It is essential. Why do I say that? Uh, I, I can find no greater assurance than this of God's solidarity with us, of God being so profoundly for the world that he's rooting for us, his church and the world, more than any of us are. He wants to redeem humankind. He wants to redeem creation. He's that serious about saving the world. Think of John 3.16, one of the first verses you probably learned uh, in Sunday school as a child. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not uh, for God so loved me, not for God so loved my family, 
not for God so love my church, not for God so love my denomination, and not for God so love my nation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Folks, that's solidarity in spades. God is in humanity's corner far more than we are. I, I, I mean, this is a profound comfort. This is a profound assurance. Jesus brought back a piece of humanity back home to heaven. That was the indispensable keepsake of a savior, savior who loves us so very much. Without it, how can we follow him into the heavenlies? How can we return home, capital H? Without it, we can't. So it's a big deal, and I'll leave it at that. In closing, let's think of a couple different things here. Lurking in the background of all these post-resurrection stories, have you noticed, and I've, I've alluded to it at points here today, there's a significant amount of waiting. There's the obvious waiting. There's the waiting for the resurrection, right? Good Friday to Easter Sunday, those three excruciating days. There's that waiting. But between resurrection and ascension, there's this waiting. Because Jesus is appearing and disappearing and appearing and disappearing, right? After the ascension, there's the waiting for the Holy Spirit, which is what we anticipate in the next week. We don't have to wait 40 days to mimic that. We celebrate that next week. Now, waiting. Folks, I know you can relate to this in these days, this waiting. So let me give you an observation about this waiting piece. Uh, after the crucifixion, Okay, i.e. before resurrection, those three days, the disciples wait in fear. They're hiding in the upper room. They're hiding in the upper room. But after the resurrection, their posture waiting shifts. It's different. It's marked by hope. It's marked by assurance. It's marked by anticipation. It's marked by worship. There's joy there. This kind of waiting, I think, is rooted in Jesus. This kind of waiting, I think, we see reflected in the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. This kind of waiting, it isn't driven by fear. It isn't driven by anxiety. And it isn't driven by impatience. So this is the kind of waiting uh, that we're called to practice right now. So we believe right now that God is at work, that God is active. He's not sitting on his hands. We believe that God is at work, even though we feel powerless in some ways and have felt powerless. We believe that God is active and at work right now, even when we don't see the visible fruits of this waiting. We believe that God is active and at work, even in the turmoil and the proliferation of opinions. We wait differently because of our faith. The fruit of the Spirit, that's our litmus test right now. We wait with love, we wait with joy, we, eat with, we wait with forbearance or patience, we wait with kindness, we wait with goodness, we wait with faithfulness, we wait with gentleness, we wait with self-control. That's how we wait. Those are the marks of the Christian faith and how we approach times like this, knowing that God is active, even when we feel very powerless. So friends, Jesus, not to put too fine of a point on it, but just to close the time, Jesus was faithful to the very, 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 very end, okay? 
faithful beyond and after the resurrection, right? When if I'm him, I would have said, I have done my job. I've done my duty. I've gone to hell and back. And yet he continues to faithfully work. And his faithfulness, his finishing well, is about preparing us to receive what comes next in the great salvation story, the gift and the promise of the Holy Spirit, which we celebrate next week on Pentecost Sunday. So today we can simply say thank you, King Jesus, and come Holy Spirit. And we can draw strength and comfort and assurance in what our Lord has said. I am with you always, even to the end of the age.